mahi kai huaka, he mahi kai takata. Just as sandstone consumes Pānamu, we are shaped and at times consumed by the work we do. Tēnā tātou katoa e whakarongo mai ana ki tēnei wahanga o te reo irirangi o Aotearoa. This is Tiahika on Radio New Zealand National. I'm Justine Murray. It's been four years since the release of the album Tuia by Māori singer-songwriter Ariana Tikal. This week, in what is described as a crossover album, From Dust to Light, is released. Um, well, some of the waiata were inspired, I suppose, by the earthquake, um, earthquakes in Christchurch. Um, there's a song in there called Let There Be Light, um, which I wrote when I was still down in Christchurch last year. And I wrote it in the middle of winter when it, everything was feeling quite dark and bleak still. Ariana Tikal coming up later in the show, plus you'll hear a few songs from the album. That's what's coming up in this edition of Te Ahika. Te Ahika, Radio New Zealand National. For Dr Ngarino Ellis, it's been a 15-year journey to graduate this year with her PhD thesis about Iwirako Carving School on the East Coast, which was accepted by Auckland University Press for publication. Her PhD topic, A Whakapapa of Tradition, Iwirako Carving, 1830-1930. to Dr Ellis researched the work of six Iwirako school carvers, to identify changes in traditional Māori art and how almost 200 of those carvings produced by the school are now housed in overseas museums. Koe kūrangi te maunga, ko waiapu te awa, ko ngai tāne me te whānua takimwana ngā hapū, ngō, ko uh, tairawhiti me ohane waiapu ngā marae, ko ngāti porau te iwi, arā, ko... Rākau mangamanga te maunga, ko epipiri te moana, ko te rāwhiti te marae, ko ngāti kuta te hapū, ko ngā pohi te iwi, ko au, ko ngā taipuri no te poko o Whataparaua mihi nei ki a koutou ki a koe, Justine, tēnā koe. Kia ora, kia ora Ngārino. So uh, Ngārino, you graduated on uh, October 2nd, yes. after 15 years of hard slog. <laughs> how, did, how did that go for you and your whānau? Oh, it was, it was overwhelming, overwhelming yeah. really. And to stand on stage as they do with PhDs, then they read out my blurb. I didn't really listen to it past the <laughs> mispronunciation of Iwi Raka. I'm just so sick of with the names. What did they and say? Iwi Rakao. Um, and it was just like, I was like... <laughs> Are they talking about Iwirako? Um, and they they didn't mangle my name too much, which was quite nice. Um, but it was really overwhelming and a really a sense of pride for my parents and um, really a sense of pride for them and for my sister who was there, um, for all of us really, and that the journey's almost over. <laughs> yes, because now it's going to be published by That's the right. Auckland University Press. You're pretty stoked with that. Really, really excited. Yeah. Um, I was really cheeky because when I handed it in, I sent a, ma- a draft to Auckland University Press and I'd been to see them about something else and they said, we're really interested in your PhD. When are you going to get it finished? And I told them... And they actually said, well, we really love it. We we want to publish it by Christmas. And this was last year. And I said, um, I have to wait until university kind of goes through <laughs> the processes. And they sent it off to a confidential referee who said, great, ditch the first chapter, which is what you normally do. And they've been really supportive of going ahead with the manuscript. 
I focused on the Iwirako Carving School, which was based at East Cape and emerged around the 1860s. And um, from the 1860s through to the 1930s, there were six primary carvers who I call the Super Six and uh, 20 secondary carvers who worked on a total of around 30 or more projects up and down the East Coast. And I was looking at their carving style. I was looking at their patronage, so who was hiring them and why they were hiring at them, hiring them. I was looking at the carvers and their biographies and their and their lives as carvers. And I was looking in the bigger picture at the idea of tradition and change within Māori art. And we have this idea about tradition and within within Māori art, and no one's ever said, well, what is tradition and how does it start and and does it end? And we do know that it ends because we do have a number of different art traditions that I was looking at, like the Pātaka, like the Wakatoa, which in the 1850s people didn't use so more, so much anymore, and in their place emerged Farenui or Farefakairo. And so I was looking at this idea of tradition and thinking about it within a Māori framework, thinking about it in relation to Whakapapa, and thinking that the Farenui grew out of its parents, which were, or or its, you know, its older generation, which were the Pātaka, the Wakatoa, the Chief's House, and more recently it was the decorated chapel. And I was looking at this flowing through in relation to Whakapapa. So when you talk about Pātaka, you're talking about a, a storehouse? That's right, decorated um, raised storehouse. And Wakatoa? War canoes. War canoes. So are you saying then, Ngāni Nora, that these were pre-Wharenui, Wharetupuna? Absolutely. Yes. They had been built for at least 150 years that we know of. And then suddenly in the 1850s, chiefs and communities decided, you know what, we don't want to build these anymore. We're going to actually focus on... And in many ways, that was a practical thing. Uh, we didn't need pātaka so much um, because of our change in our lifestyles and the way of our ways of our storage of different mm. um, treasures as well as food. We didn't need the wakatoa so much because we weren't um, as war warlike as we had been certainly in the 1810s and 1820s. And we were looking for a structure which would kind of speak of who we were at that moment and where we had come from and where we wanted to direct ourselves and and as part of that we needed to meet regularly and communally um, and intertribally and so these whare that emerged really speak of hapu, of sub-tribes, of their communities and of their chiefs. And so the the whare that you're talking about, um, Ngāniro, are these whare within the East Coast area? Well, all over New Zealand, right, but okay. uh, we did it best in the East Coast, I have to say that. <laughs> of course you would say that in Ngāti Parau. Of course, of course. But, I mean, I'm Ngāpohi as well, very proudly Ngāpohi from Te Rafti in the Bay of Islands, and we have hardly any up north, and that's because of very early contact with missionaries and yes. others who said, come over to... Um, to Christianity, change your belief systems um, and give us what you would, uh, we think you should just uh, put away, which would be carvings. And so we have hundreds of carvings all around the world which speak of this very early contact period between 1780 and, say, 1830. Um, and particularly in the north, Almost all the carvers uh, died out, um, and so they would have to bring in carvers from other areas. 
On the East Coast, it was a different situation because in the 1810s and 1820s, um, many communities were decimated by raids from Ngāpohi. And, and so as a researcher, that's a very uh, difficult thing, being Ngāpohi and Ngāshipuro, um to kind of deal with. But on the East Coast, almost every carved structure, everywhere you looked, would be decimated, destroyed, buried, dismantled, taken away as loot. And so the carvers that emerged in the 1840s and 1850s, I think, were significant Mm -hmm. in that they had hardly anything as templates or models to go on. And so what emerged were these amazing houses and the idea of the practice of being a carver and of, of architecture really became really strong by the 1860s. And so you talked about, speaking of carving, you talked about the Super Six. They yes. almost sound like superheroes. <laughs> they are. And who, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Who were those carvers? For me, the leader was a man called Honetahu, who um, might not have carved as many houses as his nephew, Hone Ngātoto, but certainly he was important in that he trained other carvers. So we have Hone Tahu, Hone Ngātoto, Tikihirini, uh, Tamati Ngākaho, who's only known for two or three houses, but they are significant. Um, the first and earliest and one of the most treasured houses um, was the one in Christchurch, which remains in Christchurch in the basement. Um, and then the last carver was Hoine Ngātai, who was a whanaunga of mine, an ancestor of mine, and had raised my great-grandfather, Panikina Ka, and he subsequently named one of his sons Hoine Ngātai, and I've named my son Takimwana after Tifanua Takimwana, and his second name is Ngātai after the Hoine Ngātai. So these six, how did you find essentially information about them when obviously, you know, they passed away you know, years ago? There was some information out there in various books um, and manuscripts, and um, so I brought that together um, and then began doing my own research um, along the way. I was helped uh, by, I had a number of different supervisors over the course of the PhD. My most significant would have to be Roger Nietzsche, uh, who was the ethnologist up at Auckland Museum and who sadly had to um, stop being my supervisor in 2007. He became um, sick with lymphoma. Um, and so he worked closely with me, advising me along the way. Um, and it was just piecing things together. Um, I'd find um, different notes in various places, and so I knew that these were the top six for me as an art historian. They were the most important, and they were the drivers of change and articulators of change, um, as well as continuity with the past. So it was piecing things together. So, um, Ngāni Nō, did, did this research, I mean, I know it was like over the course of 15 years that you <laughs> did your PhD thesis and obviously a few personal hurdles along the way too. Yes, I, um, to start off with, I was I was nursing my grandfather, Walter Mountain, and he was very old and um, not very well, um, but I... So I was focusing on helping him with mm. my whānau. Then I started having children in 2001, and I now tell my own students, don't have kids if you want to study. <laughs> um, so I had one in 2001, Emiri 2001, Hana in 2004, Taki one in 2007. And then he was a baby, he was five months old, and then my three-year-old, Hana, um, was diagnosed with leukaemia. Um, and so we had a two-year 
two and a half years of chemo, which was primarily as an outpatient, which we did at home. Mm. And then my father had a quadruple bypass uh, the same month that uh, my daughter was diagnosed. So a lot of different kind of personal issues. And really when those come up, you kind of turn to home and you kind of let's get on to business and let's just focus on getting those um, who are here well. Um, and so my PhD got put on the back burner yes. because there were more important things for me and for my Fano. And uh, so your father is Professor Emeritus Robert Ellis. That's right. He and worked at Elam for almost 40 years. 40 years. And mm. also, and your mum is Elizabeth Ellis. That's right. She's been, she was chair of Tuakatoi for many years, um, heavily involved in education, was head of the Auckland Office of Aero. Um, and is currently chairperson of the Toy Iho um, group, as well as being, in her spare time, the commissioner at Te Oti College. Busy, busy. busy. I mean, it's <laughs> obvious to me, you know, looking from the outside, that this was inevitable for you to be involved in the arts, Ngāri no. Yes, well, we'd grown up <laughs> yeah. at the art school at university, and my sister and I have got a twin sister, Hannah, and we knew that we didn't want to go into the art school because Dad and all of his friends were there, and we'd just been travelling overseas with him, and we thought we'd like to be a diplomat. So we both we were advised by the Margaret Tauriri, who's the Māori advisor at University of Auckland to do law and we also did some art history and I'd never done it at school yes. and it really opened up my eyes because the first year I took it in 1988, I'm showing my age there, 1988 <laughs> was the first year that there was any university course in Māori art history and that really opened my eyes and yeah I fell in love with it. Yes and then you told mum and dad and they were they were chuffed. They were happy. They were very chuffed. And I did, I mean, I did my law degree and I practiced for a, um, a moment or two. Um, and then I, I went back to university part time doing my master's in art history. Mm. Um, so I was a barrister four days a week or, um, and then doing my degree part time. And then there came a moment where the kind of the path split and I either got to stay in law or I took up a tutoring position in Māori art history. And so the rest is history, really. <laughs> <laughs> Which is where you are to this that's very right, day. That's right, that's right. So, Ngārino, if we can go back to your PhD thesis, we, we touched a little bit about, um, obviously, because your Ngāti Pro and your Ngāpuhi. And so the the differences or the changes in carving, in particular at Iwi Rāko or the, uh, the marae or the areas that you've studied, how have they changed? How What conclusion did you come to in your in your thesis? Well, I was looking at this idea of tradition and of change, and ultimately I'd, I'd, I wanted to celebrate the work of these iwi rako carvers mm-hmm. who really emerged from the ashes of the decimation from the 1820s and went on to become, in my view, the most... Um, the most prominent school, certainly on the East Coast, and I really wanted to highlight how important they are within New Zealand's art history. And whereas Roger Nietzsche had focused on the Rotorua area, very little research had actually been done on Ashpuro and specifically on Iwirako. And because I was from the area, that was kind of really important to, to signal that. And so I was looking at some of the very early houses, and in fact the earliest complete house is in Canterbury Museum in the basement. Um, and so I spent, I went down there several times and photographed it, and it's a phenomenal house. 
And really, when I do win that lotto, I would like to build an extra wing, another extra wing onto Tairafti Museum in Gisborne and bring it home. It is absolutely phenomenal. Just We have popo with men holding guns, a whole range of different guns and mm. scabbards or swords and the figurative painting on that is phenomenal and, and that information and that knowledge is not circulating on the East Coast, circulating within the artistic community, within within the knowledge of carvers and mokul practitioners particularly who could look for these as models for their own practice. And so the book is really one way of bringing them out of the basement, bringing those carvings um, and related works out from the darkness and into the light and to show, case to everyone, the range, the breadth of work that was there, the breadth of carvers and how they changed over time. Um, but also to have a look at these carvers and have a look at the pa- patrons and very little has been written about those patrons and so mine is one of the the few stories that there are at the moment um, about this. And I certainly see this as um, the starting point. There is mm. lots more research that can be done. Someone who is fluent could go and look at all the land court minutes, which is so, there's so much to be done. Fluent so, in te reo. And fluent yes. in te reo. Someone who lives on the coast could go and talk um, in depth to all those whānau and do so much more research. But I, I like to think of this as the first step. And... Um, mm. Professor Robert Young here from Massey University also has written a PhD. He focused on Riwai Pākero, um, another of those six, the last of those six I forgot to mention. And he, um, so there is material out there and there's a whole range of different approaches. Mine was specifically art historical. Um, but there are a number of different approaches that could be taken. It's, it's an exciting time. Kia ora, Dr Ngarino Alice. We've posted up some useful links about Dr Ngarino at our webpage, radionz.co.nz forward slash Te Ahika. And you can also find us on Facebook, search Te Ahika, that's T-E-A-H-I-K-A-A. It's some love story, the one involving the parents of Manos Nathan, Ned and Katina Nathan. Set it in wartime Greece where an injured Māori battalion soldier from Ahikiwi, that's between Dargaville and Kaihu in New Zealand, is sheltered by the Tarakas family of Crete, Greece. And, well, it really starts to read like a Hollywood blockbuster. Yet it wasn't all hearts and roses. Patience, perseverance and a bit of luck played its part in the story of Ned Nathan and Katina Tarakas. In approaching Patricia Grace to write the story of your parents, uh, I read the preface and it, it took a lot of trust. Mm. And you, you know what strikes me about the book is that she's able to interweave historic history so you don't feel like you're getting a history lesson at the same time, as well as the, the very personal narrative of your parents. I mean... Is it what? Why did you decide to finally put this story into publication? Uh, it really came about. Uh, I'm going to go back a bit. Um, when my when my father died, um, my mother came to live with me, and I became aware of uh, the pressure she was under um, with um, phone calls and with letters mm-hmm. of people wanting to 
you know, do the story, do the doco, make a movie. But why Thea's story, Manos? Why? Why Thea's story? Oh, I don't know. You know, the love story aspect is the immediate thing, isn't it? Um, and we were... Um, we thought if the story has to be told, you know, we wanted a, a larger story which really acknowledged the Cretan people in particular and um, really told the story about much more than just the love story. Yeah, and it I think, all ends up happily ever after. Yeah, yeah. You know, you could cut it off there and, you know, then it's sort of all, you know, it's Hollywood la-la, you know, <laughs> or the Captain Corelli, you know, and that's the last thing we wanted. So... Um, talking about Captain Corelli's mandolin. I am. Uh, and, and and I think um, you know Pat's given as much as you know. Yes, it's a, a biography, but it's also a social history of New Zealand. So when you have uh, you know, a number of old people, and not only are so old actually, but have approached me and said I didn't know about segregated hospitals, just as an example. And you think, well, okay, but that's that's how it was. You know, so we got to own up to that stuff. So and also, you know, the the background to um, how life was for um, my father's mm-hmm. family and others in the depression years, all of that stuff, you know. Uh, but uh, we made my brothers and I made the approach to Pat because, uh, you know, through our links in you know the art world, Napunawaihanga and Wakatoi, you know, we were um, friends from way back, and I knew that my dad and her dad, you know, being two eight members, two eight battalion, <laughs> so there was all that. And the other thing was, I had a sort of a, a gut instinct that it needed to be written by a woman. And um, my brothers concurred. A man may have focused on the war. I think probably if a man had done it, there would have been a different emphasis. I want to tell you about the experience of working with Pat in the research stage mm-hmm. where we visited Crete. So Dick Dick and Pat and I um, moved around the place and it, it gave me an understanding of what happened uh, with Dad and Uncle Joe and, and Māori soldiers in particular. And <laughs> what I saw was the, uh, the affinity of the people. What I saw was how r- easy it was for Pat and Dick to slip into the Cretan culture, and how um, how quickly the, the response was, you know, how quickly it was affirmed, and to me that was uh, it took me by surprise a wee bit, and I thought, oh, too much, <laughs> you know. I hadn't thought about this, but I just saw it happening under you know in front of my eyes, and it, and it was marvellous. Yeah. And what were some of those other things that you just by living that experience that you that making things click into you? Oh, like, okay. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, just, yeah, you know, like getting off on food and kaimoana. <laughs> uh, yeah. But, um, it's just it's that people thing, you know, that warmth. And I can remember hearing um, Dad and others, you know, when we used to eavesdrop on, we weren't meant to be there, they'd be sitting down having a drink. Um, you know, around the table, a few whiskeys, the old buggies are sitting talking, and we'd be at the door listening. And things had come out about, you know, how, you know, the Cretan woman dressed in black looked like the aunties from home. And, <laughs> you yeah. know, all of that. Yeah. A lot of little things, eh? Yeah, so seeing all those those connections between mm. Cretes and Māori. Yeah, yeah. And I think the other thing, you, what you've, you know, the, the obvious thing to me is, you know, people of the soil. These are, you know, they both come from pretty pohara communities, mm. uh, you know, growing their kai, living off the land. 
So there was, you know, our lot would have slipped into that real easy. I'm not saying, you know, that's not to say that Pakistan soldiers didn't see it as well, but I think um, certainly it was more akin to what our people were used to from home. Now, in putting the story of your parents to paper, I mean, do you run the risk of it being, well, this is the true, whole truth and nothing but the truth? Uh, risk. Um, it's, you know, there, there are things that aren't in the book. Uh, uh, as there wouldn't be. Uh, yeah, you know, it's, you know. But the, the reality is, you know, I think that, you know, Pat did a draft and we saw the draft sheet, you know, and there was, you know, we were just totally pleased with what we saw because I think she you know she nailed it all we had to do was tidy up things like names and spelling and there wasn't there was no real major rewrite of anything at all you know, there was no you know none of that sort of thing and even the inclusion of the photos seemed uh, to be the very photos yes well you know we've we've got a pretty big archive of, of photos um the my, you know the maternal uncle, the doctor that pats the old man up, he gave dad a beautiful bellows like a camera. <laughs> wow, they're worth heaps. Well, you know they're now, highly collectible now, but there was a superb camera, and so when that camera camera came back to Aotearoa, you know, 1945, must have been one of the only cameras in the Hokianga of that <laughs> <laughs> of that calibre. <laughs> yeah. So you know we got a lot of photos of haymaking and you know, hui hui. The photographs. There was a process of working with the uh, the editor, uh, the um, the Penguin people. So overall, it sounds like the process was one that was very much inclusive of the Fano. Oh, very much so. Um, um, you know, my brothers and I were uh, close to Pat. You know, from the first time we went to see her, and we gave her a CD of some images. <laughs> And um, some letters and things, so she had a look at, you know, that sort of wet her appetite, I think. <laughs> um, but yeah, it was a it was a very um, it was a lovely process for our family, and it was a, a very lovely process for our kids, because you know they have, you know, when you grow up with a story, you know, they 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 knew the story, but they didn't know the detail, and um, even more meaningful. When we were on Crete earlier this year, we went up for the the commemorations of the the Battle of Crete. Crete. Mm. So we were there um, for some of the um, you know the official functions, but we kept one step ahead, so we could um, you know it was like a kawemati really. So we needed to do what we needed to do, and we just tried to keep one step ahead of the touring groups. But yeah, very very um, very rewarding for the kids. A number of whom were reading the book while we were travelling. So. I'm like, wow! <laughs> going here, revisiting the book. Mm. So, what was the how did what was the name that they called their grand, uh, your parents? They called um, them by the Cretan names. They they called uh, Katina Yaya. Yaya. And they called the old man Papu. 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 So, what are they reading the book? Going, oh my God! Look what Yaya was doing yeah, with Papu. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, that's pretty much it. <laughs> so it hasn't mythologised them at all? No, I, I think... You see, the thing is, you know, you know they're your parents. You, you know, you, you don't think like this. But, you know, when, it was when they both left that we thought, you know, we've got to do something because of the you know these other issues I mentioned earlier. But, you know, we were too close to it to um, see it the way other people saw it, I think. For yourself, mm -hmm. when you saw the finished product, 
did it make you think, oh, now I understand even more about my parents, or oh, that that now makes that makes sense? I'll tell you one thing that certainly helped is we had the the letters that were going backwards and forwards between between Crete and our dad in the prisoner of war camp, Stalag 8P. <laughs> and um, Pat did the work in terms of sequencing them properly. I'd read a number of them, but I can remember, you know, not being, so, not, be, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> not being so interested in that, but they used to have these fantastic stamps on them with, um, you know, the, the, um, the Nazis... Um, big eagles and SWAT stickers and things and it was a little boy I'd go, oh wow, look at that you know? <laughs> so I used to like that stuff and you know, didn't read, well I sort of read them but didn't read them, if you know what I mean so Pat was the one that did the sequencing to, you know, to really get the yeah, and then, you know, when the stuff comes out that really the, everything Dad wrote in Greek, she didn't get that's right Yeah, yeah she so, never got them, so yeah. when he turned up at the house <laughs> She hadn't received the letters yet. Yeah, he he arrived before the letters. Mm. Yeah, if he if, if he wrote something in English, you know, I think that was more likely to get through. But they'd worked out a, um, I think Pat alludes they'd worked out a code, mm. um, so Dad could ask questions without giving the game away. So the um, you know, the, the Germans that read the letters were, weren't um, able to understand what he was really asking. Because even when your father was a prisoner of war and then he went to England he and was, there was a delay and then he went yes. back to Greece. He oh, was repatriated to, to um, he was repatriated, you know, the soldier swap because of his wounds and he needed to have, uh, well, I suppose early form of plastic surgery. So he went to, he went back to England. He was in hospital for about a year while they, um, you know, did the skin grafts and everything for the, particularly for the head wound. Because he was blind in one eye, most people didn't realise it, but yeah. Now, I guess what, you know, we spoke earlier about, you know, it's very much a love story about your parents, but it's also about what happens after the happily ever after. Sure. And, I mean, he went on to have kids, but I know for my karawa, both of them, they suffered quite a lot from the post-traumatic stress did you experience or observe any of that happening with your father and the impact that it had on simple, your mother? Simple answer is no. No, we didn't see any sign of that. Although I knew that um, when the when the the two eight battalion, you know, when the the, the you know the committee they had a uh, you know like a they made a major effort at re- rehabilitation and support. And I can remember that at a particular stage it was Dad and Bully Jackson and Bill Hedwini. And they were they were like the little triumvirate, and I remember during that, their tenure they were working really hard at that sort of support for the widows and that sort of thing. So I only became aware of it at that time. I had no idea that that was an issue. You know, we know much more about that now, but of course they were very quiet and private about that. Well, you know, you know, we know now that some whānau suffered, but mm. I wasn't aware of any of that or the degree of the depth of it. When I read Ned and Katina, I felt very humbled and uh, reading into the experiences of your parents mm. and also getting a, a wider historical perspective because you knew them, eh? And it's your life, you're, you're part of it as well. I was um, quite surprised that, um, that we, were, we were in it to the degree that we were in it when, when we read the draft. I said, hey, Pat... You know how how come you're talking about this? You know things like blowing up letter boxes and 
I had no idea that, you know, they, these were just the sides that the writer picked up on. You know? <laughs> and and she was saying, well, you know that, you know, you have to be in the story, and, and you know, and I, oh, okay. Yeah, of course you do, you know. But, you know, I hadn't really thought about that no, side of it. Cause, cause I might have been a bit more circumspect. <laughs> uh, anyway. Well, you know, because while, while you're leaving a book, which is a legacy to your tamariki and your mokopuna in mm. the many to come, you know, in reality, the legacy is that you're here and that all yeah. the rest and, and the many more to come are as well. Yeah, and I think it's also you know it's 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 nice to have a little. I'd love to see more stories like that, frankly. You know, before we lose them all, you know, you know, get the information, talk to the old people before they go. You know, we've left these things so late. Or else we can but tend I, to put them into little compartments mm, of your. Mm. You can tell your story, but it has to be in the context of your relationship with the marae. Mm, mm, <laughs> yeah. or you know, with the environment, which is all very. Mm. Um, present and very real, but mm. there's yeah. It, look, it's a battalion story. It's part of the you know the the narrative of the two eight battalion. It's 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 many things, and I wish there was more of them. You know, I know there was uh, there were relationships that developed in Italy. Well, the battalion right. was in Italy. You know, there has to be other stories. <laughs> but yeah, it's um it it it, it doesn't belong just to the far no. You know, really. But I guess, Manas, it also, I mean, you opened your lives out and the mm. lives of your parents to, for the public to have a look at. And it, it yeah. actually involves a degree of being very honest yeah. about the kind of people you are. And, mm -hmm. you know, a lot of families may not necessarily be up for that kind of. Sure. That is, that is, yes, yeah, certainly it is an issue, and it sort of confronts us again. You know, I alluded, to, I started talking about, you know, trying to get people off our backs. <laughs> um, you know, to, you know, to, um, you know, put a, perhaps not the definitive version, but put it out there w with the information that, you know, um, cleared away some of the misinformation about the sequence of events and who did what and when. Um, and now it's sort of, in a sense, it's come back to bite us in the bum because um, there is, you know, after a little bit of a hiatus, all of a sudden we we are being approached again. I thought we, <laughs> I thought we'd dealt with that, but yes, um, it's something we'll, as a whanau, we'll have to deal with as it unfolds. Because I guess now you're getting a little bit of a taste of what it's like to be a rock star. I hope not. <laughs> oh, yeah, I hope not. When you have all these unauthorised biographies, <laughs> authorised mm. ones. Kia ora, that's awesome. Oh, thank you. <laughs> Manos Nathan with Mariah Rakuraku. Since the Christchurch earthquakes, it's obvious the landscape has changed. People are rebuilding their lives, some from scratch, and the work to develop and restore business continues. For Māori singer-songwriter Ariana Tikal, who grew up there, she's experienced firsthand the devastation the earthquake has had upon her hometown. It also provided inspiration for her new album, released this week, From Dust to Light. Hi, uh, ko uh, Auraki Te Mauka, ko Waitaki Te Awa, ko Kaitahu Te Iwi, ko Katiere Kehu Te Hapu, ko Ariana Tikal Ahau. He told me not to say 
associate you with being um, a solo artist. Uh, your first album was Fire, then Tuya, and then this, this new album from mm. Dust to Light. But you also, you completed a tour this year with Emeralds and Greenstone. Was that your yeah. band? Uh, yeah, there was another group that um, I've been involved with um, probably for about five or six years. Mm-hmm. And that group um, is based in Christchurch. We're still doing some things together. Um, and that group is a folk group really based around the theme of um, Māori and Celtic music. So yeah, it was quite a, a fun collaboration. Would you describe yourself as a, as a folk singer? Because it seems to me that over the last, because um, with Tuia four years ago, I remember when um, you performed at Pau 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 and the, the album Tuia that released compared to now, I mean to me they seem vastly different. Maybe mm. it's because Tuia was te reo or kaupapa mm. driven and this one isn't. Um, agree, disagree? Yeah, I, kind of, yeah I, I suppose that's my background has been in, in acoustic music. Um, but yeah, over the years, depending on the songs, it, it sometimes 
does move beyond that, I suppose, into different styles. Like Tuya was a bit more electronic. Yes. Um, and I do enjoy those kind of aspects as well. So um, I think my my roots as an artist are, are with folk, um, and and also now, yeah, I'm getting more into Taonga Poro playing mm-hmm. as well. So though, in, yeah, in some ways that's kind of like a traditional folk, I suppose, as well. But um, yeah, anything that comes from, I suppose, our our motu, our country. Yeah, I see that as as being a kind of folk as well. On a deep down dim day, espresso calls. On a deep down dim day, espresso calls. Beckons me home like the wolf unto the fold. Yeah, because is this a crossover album? Essentially, eh? trying to be more mainstream. Well, yeah, the the people that are doing my promo are yes. kind of, um, going towards that um, that aspect of of it being more um, crossover, I suppose. That um, maybe having a wider appeal, but it wasn't really intentional at the time. It's just um, I was going to say, yeah, how the songs, yeah, you know, presented themselves in the studio. Um, I didn't go out purposefully to yeah. do that but also yeah there were some songs that had been with me for a while that I hadn't actually recorded and so they ended up on this album so that might um, yeah might have shaped the, the overall sound of it I suppose and, and it being a bit more diverse There are 11 tracks on the album uh, from Dust to Light um, I had one of my favourites actually is the song Espresso you have uh, four te, um, te Reo Māori uh, tracks. In terms of Te Reo Māori and writing Māori language, um, of course, in your kaitahu dialect, who helped you with um, the real component? Um, I mostly just write them myself. Mm-hmm. Um, but then, yeah, with uh, Karoi Mata, that was um, helped um, by... Yeah, Morris Gray helped me finish it because I, I knew what I wanted to say, but I was having trouble kind of expressing it. So he, yeah, came along and helped me express what I wanted to say. And um, my husband, Ross Kelman, he's also an editor of, um, he edits Te Reo Māori, so often I'll get him to just check over things, make sure I get them Ka right. Bye. Yeah. Um, You know the track, Let There Be Light, Ariana, was your voice altered in any way? Because for a second, when I was listening to it this morning, I was thinking, I don't think, I think that's uh, your voice altered or somebody else. Uh, no, it was just, it was in quite a high key. Yes. Um, yeah, <laughs> and yeah, mostly, I think it's because I wrote it on the dulcimer and the dulcimer's tuned to that um, D tuning. the album release, are you embarking on a tour? Um, yeah, I'm heading to Christchurch um, for the Kaitahu Huia Iwi um, in a couple of weeks and I'm doing a performance there um, at a concert called Te Koha and then I'll have a public release that weekend as well on the 25th of November at the Ducks Live in Christchurch and then I've got some other things coming up over summer so looking forward to 
getting it out there. Kapan, you're heading home, eh? Heading home to Otautahi Christchurch to do it all essentially. So that's awesome to hear. Um, Kei Tatuki Tera, Ariana Tikao, Māori singer, songwriter, thank you very much for your time. Kia ora. We enjoy getting your feedback too, Fano Ma. You can always email us, tiahika at radioNZ.co.nz or find us on Facebook. That's T E A H I K A A. Anira Ariana Tikao Ano with this week's Fakatoki. He mahi kai huaka, he mahi kai takata. Just as sandstone consumes Pānamu, we are shaped and at times consumed by the work we do. Um, this whakatauki, to me, it means um, that it takes hard work to create something uh, worthwhile and of beauty. Kuariana tikawahau, kia ora. Next week, I'm back at Ōtaki Māori Racing Club. And yes, Mariah Rakaraku is back in the whare. He mihi tēnei kia koutou katoa e are taringa mai nei ki tēnei hōtaka. Atu i tērā ki ngā kairā wiki wiki mihini ngā mihi. Hoki mai hei tērā rā tapu, mauri ora.